Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Just three cardinal rules of my ability and longevity. One, surround yourself with people whose eyes light up when they see you coming. Two, slowly is the fastest way to get to where you want to be. And three, the top of one mountain is the bottom of the next, so keep climbing. But to gaze at a stage of performers like these, or any and all of tonight's nominees, to be in their presence and bask in their art Will lighten your spirit and gladden your heart The laughs fill your belly, the tears fill your eyes The hair on the back of your neck starts to rise And it's so indescribably pleasant You're in the moment and totally present You go to a show cause the show lets you know that you're here And you're now, and you're real, and you feel It's going to be a long night, right? I'm so hungry. This is a collect call from The Theatre Podcast, bringing you exclusive behind-the-scenes access to The Theatre Awards Season 2019. This is Serial, part of a Broadway lover's complete breakfast. In this special five-part miniseries, we bring you stories and interviews from some of the most hard-to-access places throughout the month of May, leading up to the red carpet and press room of the Tony Awards themselves, which took place on June 9th, 2019. This is now part five of Serial. If you haven't listened to parts one through four, I encourage you to pause and back up a few weeks so you can listen to the road leading up to tonight. The Antoinette Perry Award for Excellence in Broadway Theater, more commonly known simply as the Tony Awards, were first given out 73 years ago on April 6, 1947, and are presented by the American Theater Wing and the Broadway League. Inside Radio City Music Hall, as the award ceremony was taking place, there was a small room across the street that they called the Media Room. This is where all the press outlets lucky enough to be granted access to speak to the Tony Award winners patiently await the results of the night. There were people live-tweeting results, updating websites in real-time, taking notes for their publications going out early in the morning, and Jillian and myself. Once the winners gave their acceptance speeches, they were taken across the street to see us. No longer on national TV, adrenaline somewhat gone away, no time pressure of a ticking clock to make a speech, the winners were able to relax a little bit and directly answer our questions. There was a small crew controlling two cameras and a pool of microphones all pointed at a small stage in the front of the room. For the techies out there, they had the media room video and audio feeds available for local recording via BNC and XLR cables respectively. 
We plugged an XLR cable into our recording gear, set up our personal microphones on the table in front of us, and quietly began recording, trying our best not to disturb anyone around us who was listening to the live telecast of the Tony Awards themselves. Guys, we're here. Oh my goodness, it's 7.55 Eastern Standard Time. We shot that whole thing without a script. Yeah, but it was great. We're in the press room we're, right now. We're in the yeah, the media room, the press room. I don't know exactly. I don't know. My feet hurt. What it is? Yeah. <laughs> oh, we were standing for for so many hours. Oh, I um, hear James Corden's voice. We saw. We met James Corden and met his parents. And one of the best moments of the night was when he introduced Jeff Daniels to, to his, his parents. parents. <laughs> his dad's a crier. It's so cute. He's just so proud of his son. They are both so proud. And Ellen, do you want to describe what? what this room is what we're seeing right now this room okay so the press room imagine if you've ever been to a press junket which i'm sure doesn't help a lot of people um so we're basically all at tables that mm-hmm. are rectangular tables there's one two three four it's almost five, like classroom six. style yes classroom style six rows of tables three there's two aisles so three sections and it's probably 50 feet wide um we're in a in a room, a big room across directly across 51st Street from Radio City. So when the winners win, they will come across the street, come up onto the stage here. There's a nice step and repeat that has Tony, CBS, all yeah. over the place, and uh, then it's basically if you imagine, okay, the White House briefings, <laughs> where somebody stands in front and everybody raises their hands and asks their questions, and so everyone's asking questions publicly and hearing each other's answers. The energy in here is much, much less stressful. The red carpet, man, that was that was stressful. It was like the best kind of stressful, though. It was an exciting stressful. Yeah. Yeah. Like I won't sleep tonight, <laughs> but like because this is literally dreams come true right now um i really like in here it's nice and cool there's some sitting they gave us these cool snack boxes we have the tony playbill i'm so excited i've been collecting playbills since i was 12. oh wow so yeah this is this is like the pinnacle of my collection right now the pinnacle of your collection this is kind of incredible yeah Not everything asked or spoken made it into the final cut of this episode, but we'll try to give you a glimpse into what made us laugh, get inspired, and maybe even shed a few tears. The very first person to come speak with us was someone we'd spoken to already when she won her Drama Desk Award, Celia Keenan-Bolger, who now stood in front of us holding her Tony Award for Best Supporting Actress in a Play. When asked why now is the right time to play her character of Scout in Aaron Sorkin's Broadway adaptation of To Kill a Mockingbird, she had the following to say. Yeah, I mean, I think so much of why it feels like right now it's important has to do with what Aaron Sorkin did with the script and the way that I feel so attached to what he is trying to put out onto a Broadway stage that is asking these really big questions about our country's relationship to race and where we've come from and what more morality and justice mean. I think this is also the first time I've been nominated when I had a four-year-old child. And so everything is sort of being filtered through the lens of also being a parent and what his experience of watching To Kill a Mockingbird or reading To Kill a Mockingbird will be. So I just think it's, it's almost less it's about the characters, certainly, because I, I have been obsessed with Jean-Louise Finch for as long as I can remember, but it's also very much about this play in this moment, in this cultural moment that we're living in right now. 
Rob Howell, who took home not one but two Tony Awards for costume design and scenic design for his work in The Ferryman, the most decorated play of the evening, gave the following answer when asked what it means to him to win two awards. We're very, very lucky people. That's a given. We put on plays for a living. Right? That's a lot to be able to say that we do. And um, I'm proud of the journey that I was allowed to be part of with The Ferryman. And I can't remember what I said in my speech. What I was trying to say was that we all started with an unfinished but already beautiful thing. And uh, to be part of a band of people who are committed to something which still isn't finished, but we're all committed to, that's, that is a sort of tremendous privilege. The most decorated musical of the evening was, of course, Hadestown. First to speak on behalf of the show was Bradley King, who won the award for Best Lighting Design of a Musical. And he tells us about why he was able to collaborate so well with the rest of the Hadestown creative team. It helps when you've spent three years together sort of marinating in the same pot, when you've spent a winter in Edmonton, Canada, like many of us have, that brings people really close together. And then when you travel out of town to London for a month, that brings you even closer. Um, and it's just the opportunity to um, really, really develop a design over many years, I think, leads to some really great collaboration and some really um, well design elements interacting really well with, with each other. Bradley King presents as a white male. When asked about his opinion on how to get more women, especially women of color, involved in lining design, he has the following to say. You know, I think a lot of people think that there's a pipeline problem and that, oh, well, we don't have younger designers of color or we don't have younger women designers. That's absolutely false. They, I work with them all the time. They're my friends, they're my colleagues, but they aren't given the opportunities for the bigger and bigger shows. They're not in the room to make the connections that um, this is entirely connection-based business that designers are in. It's about knowing producers, it's about knowing directors, and if, they, um, if you're not allowed into the room, then you can't develop those connections um, and build a career. Um, so I think it's incumbent on, not just on producers and directors and artistic directors, many of whom are often picking the design teams for their directors at nonprofit theaters, um, to cast their nets wider, but also for um, those of us doing bigger shows to make sure that our assistants and our associates um, are really um, from diverse backgrounds, economically, um, ethnically, um, we need to cast a much wider net. Bertie Carvel, after winning Best Featured Actor in a Play for his work in Inc., discusses how he chooses what roles he wants to accept in his future. Uh, exciting ones and things that I haven't done before. I, I've made a rule uh, not to, to repeat myself, so um, uh, I hope I can do that. The problem with that is that uh, nobody recognizes you and then you don't get casting things because they're like, wasn't that that guy who did that completely different thing? So I'll, I'll hope to carry on that, that pattern. Bertie also speaks to some feedback he got from Rupert Murdoch himself and what he thinks the responsibility of journalism actually is. I think art and journalism in common have a duty to the truth, but I think their way to it is different. And we are doing a play, and my first primary job is to serve the play. The play is not a play about Rupert Murdoch, it's a play about populism, it's a play about journalism and the state of it now and how we got there. And um, I think in thinking about those things, I've got more license than a journalist would have. Uh, in answer to your question, what, did he, what feedback did we get? I asked him what one thing he'd change, and he said nothing. Um, uh, having said that, uh, he, he, you know, it was too late by then, so uh, he probably took the, right, took the right tack. Next to win for Town was the scenic designer, Rachel Hauck who in her own way echoed what was said previously by Bradley King about the entire show being created as a single entity, born all at once from a collaborative team. 
It's extraordinary. I mean, it is uh, hands down the hardest thing I have ever done. Those lyrics and that music are, is pure poetry. It could look like anything. Um, and for us to have journeyed so long together, those, those designs are fused together. Um, there's no sort of separation in ideas. And I think the reason that the, the piece is so powerful from the design standpoint, amongst many other things, that it carries great power. Um, the music was born together. The, the orchestrations were born together. The, the lights and the sound are completely interwoven with the set. So, you know, for all of us to have taken this very long, very um, uh, extended journey to the birth of this piece together, and it's grown and grown and grown, and we've learned a lot about what it is and a lot about what it isn't, and, and all of that journey is in the designs that's on stage. So, um, to receive this recognition as a team is extraordinary and, and very, very rewarding. Bob Mackey won Best Costume Design for a Musical for his work on The Cher Show. Since most of the costumes are replicas of what Cher originally wore at certain points in her career, it's my opinion that this is a validation of how amazing all the costumes are that he has created for Cher over the years. Not just what he created for this particular show. With that said, when asked if he wanted to do more Broadway, of course he said yes. I would love to design for another musical, but hopefully not one with bare tummies and, and too much glitter. I think I've done enough of that in my life. When asked about his creative process, Fitz Patton, who won Best Sound Design of a Play for Choir Boy, gives the room some interesting insight into what kind of feeling he strives for when putting himself into his work. It's hard to differentiate between sound and what sound is, what the transition music is, what the, you know, the quality of the voices of the actors. But it, if you want to think about it now, you have to ask yourself, did it, did it, was I immersed in it? Was it transporting? Did the theater vibrate and, and with an energy I've never heard before? Like this theater, let's say that the theater you're in, you're always like, oh, it's a decent theater. But tonight, the show you read, was it like really exciting? Did you forget you were in a theater? That's a good, that's a good thing, you know? And so I think it's like, um, you know, if you had to ask yourself a question, you know, what it was, it's, it's really about, you know, did the sound make you forget where you were? And did it bring you so close to the actors and so close and take you so far inside the world that you were just, you know, the word is transported, but I think more to it, you become thoroughly lost in the adventure of it. One of the awards Tootsie took home was Best Book of a Musical, written by Robert Horn. Normally, this category is won by a drama. Tootsie, being a comedy, stands out in this regard. Listen, I think it's, it was a really uh, vibrant season for dramas and comedies and musicals in general. I love that comedy, you know, that this is sort of a modern, old-fashioned musical, and it's been a while since we had one, and I loved having the opportunity to sort of say that that genre still very much exists and is important for Broadway. Rachel Chavkin took home the Tony for Best Direction of a Musical for Hadestown. She was asked a question about how she broke into the industry and gave an answer that I hope gives perspective on how hard most people have to work before they are recognized, if they ever are. I would never say I broke into anything. I, be, I began um, working right out of college as an assistant director and also producing my own work. 
uh, and I never stopped doing that. Um, and that was in bars uh, during the daytime where a friend was working and we could get the space in the basement. Um, that was in whatever free space that we could get. Uh, and I started a company called The Team that is still around today, an experimental ensemble. Uh, and then slowly began also working with writers and composers, including Dave Malloy. Uh, and I would say Dave and I kind of probably came through together when Great Comet became a, a hit in 2012. Rachel's televised acceptance speech was powerful, and on the topic of diversity and inclusion, said that everyone is ready to go. In the media room for us, she explained a little further. As, as maybe you know, inclusion has long been a, a particular passion of mine. I think that the, our, our field is very is filled with progressive people, and yet our field is not exemplary uh, in terms of living its politics. Most uh, uh, first and foremost, who is telling the stories and what stories are we telling? Um, so I think inclusion is like at the forefront. And before we worry about fixing problems elsewhere, I think there has to be a lot of attention paid to our own backyard. Uh, and Broadway is the most visible part of the backyard. Other parts of it are like thriving, uh, and I think we're seeing this incredible renaissance of voices, uh, writers and directors and designers and choreographers working downtown uh, and off-Broadway and regionally around the country. So that's what I meant when I said everyone is ready to go. It's not a call for altruism, it's just a call for hiring the people uh, and not assuming that directing on Broadway or Xing on Broadway is a prerequisite for Xing on Broadway because that's just a recipe for disaster. Continuing with one last sound clip from Rachel, here's what she had to say when I asked her how it happened that she started working with Anais Mitchell. Anais told me that she contacted you after she saw your work on uh, Great Comet. Comet, yeah. Do you remember where you got that call and how you felt when you got this call and Anais was on the other line well, saying, I want you to do... Well, it was 2012, so it was an email. Um, <laughs> and it was, uh, it was a friend, actually. It was a mutual drummer who is like a really sick drummer. Uh, and he wrote to connect the two of us. Um, and I, we spent about six months dating, actually, as colleagues, um, trying to figure out what collaboration would be like. And then finally in 2013, I, by that time, I had fallen very deeply in love with the 2010 studio album and with Aeneas as a human being. Um, and I, and when we like leapt in finally in like one four and a half hour Skype session, but years later, actually, I was looking through on my iPhone, I keep just a running list of like dream projects and collaborators and things that I hear about. And I was, for some reason, going through it. Uh, and at the very bottom of the list was the note, Aeneas Mitchell, songwriter heard on soundcheck, that I must have taken in like 2010, two years before we ever connected. So in retrospect, it feels like kismet, but that's the story. Sergio Trujillo won the Tony for Best Choreography for Ain't Too Proud. When asked if he felt he was at a disadvantage because they didn't have an official out-of-town tryout, he had the following to say. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think going into this show, I had a, a head start because I knew uh, Ephraim Sykes was in Memphis. He was, one of, uh, he was actually 20 years old when I hired him, uh, and he was one of my lead dancers in the show. Derek Baskins was also in Memphis. Jim Harkness, won, uh, he danced, he's danced actually in three of my shows, and Jeremy Pope danced in Invisible Thread, which is an off-Broadway show. And so going into this, I had a head start. So, you know, what was, what's been great about the journey of Ain't Too Proud is that we, we did Berkeley, Washington, LA, Toronto, and so, we developed uh, a, a, a sort of a shorthand in the process. Um, so 
when, when you open a show cold in New York City, it really creates a lot of pressure, a lot of stress. And, and it may not at times be the most, the most uh, sort of constructive way of working, but in this way we were able to breathe life into it. And I was able to you know, continue to just, even, even the day before opening night, I was still, I was fine tuning all the choreography because I felt like this was an opportunity for me to step up to bat and, and hit a home run. Making history tonight was the first person in a wheelchair to win a Tony Award. The Tony for Best Featured Actress in a Musical went to... Ali Stroker! Oh yeah! She had some amazing advice for producers and theater owners on how to be more accessible, not only for front of house patrons, but backstage actors. Well, uh... The, the theaters for the house where all the audience comes in, that is all made accessible to patrons, but the backstages are not. And so I would ask theater owners and producers to really look into how they can begin to make the backstage accessible so that performers with disabilities can get around. She gave a wonderful explanation of her process of working with her director and choreographer from Oklahoma to explore what she can and cannot do, and have real conversations about what's feasible on stage. Yeah, uh, I got to collaborate with um, our choreographer and our director very closely because the reality is, is that I know my vocabulary as far as movement goes the best and so we talked a lot about like what could work throughout the show especially because this character in this role has relationships with two different guys and so how are we going to physicalize all of that and um, and uh, I think the first part of, of that process is trust you know is to have these conversations with them about um, that that the way that I move and the way in which we can portray this woman's sexuality and um, physicality is all going to be done in a safe way. Um, because for, for them, they have never worked with someone in a chair. Um, so it's been really, really fun to find that with them. Winning the Tony for Best Revival, producers Ryan Murphy and David Stone accepted the award for the boys in the band. Speaking first is Ryan. They were asked about being attached to the Netflix production of this, to which they said, David and I are producing it. Joe Mantello is directing it. It is um, one of the first things that I set up right when I did my Netflix deal. And, you know, this is the 50th year of this play. And what I'm excited about is, you know, 165 million people all over the world internationally will now have access to watch this play. And I remember being a very, very young guy six, seven, and sing boys on the band on television. And it was the only thing that I had. It was the only um, group of gay men I had ever seen. So I'm just excited about the evolution of that idea and bringing it to a new audience. And, and Joe, who's such a brilliant theater director, getting the chance to work in a different medium with great support. You know, Mart uh, has mentioned that this is probably the only property uh, in history that was filmed with its original off-Broadway cast and made a film in 1970 and then filmed with its original Broadway cast both 50 years later, 50 years from the play and then 50 years from the, the film. One of the most satisfying moments of the night was right after Rosemary Harris was given her Lifetime Achievement Award for her amazing 67-year Broadway career. 
She made her Broadway debut in 1952, and before this, the only Tony she received was in 1966 for The Lion in Winter. She was just seen in My Fair Lady and speaks to why she decided to accept the role. Yes, I, 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 my base camp, I live in North Carolina. And uh, I was there when Andre Bishop emailed me and said, would I like to come and replace Dame Diana Rigg, who was leaving. And uh, I thought about it. My husband had just passed away, and so I was in a fog. I wasn't really quite sure what I wanted to do. Um, but my daughter, Jennifer, uh, said, well, perhaps you should go up and see the show first before you make a decision. So, of course, I came up and fell in love with it. It's the most beautifully realized production. But um, I decided that it was far too difficult. It would be like trying to get onto a moving train, an express train while it was moving, and I, I didn't think I would be capable of it. But I thought a little bit more about it. Um, I wrote an email to Andre Bishop, but I didn't send it. I kept tweaking it and tweaking it and tweaking it, and finally I decided maybe I should bite the bullet and be brave and do it, and I am very, very grateful. And they made it so easy for me. Um, I came up, I've never been in a musical before. Uh, I'm learning all this new jargon, like put-ins and tracks and all the new words I'm learning. Um, but they couldn't have been kinder and sweeter and helped me, and uh, there I am. And alas, we've only got four more weeks. Anais Mitchell won the Tony for Best Original Score for Hadestown. When asked what she was planning on doing next, of course she has a few irons in the fire. Oh yes, back to the world of music. <laughs> I, um, I've been working on a new um, folk band project. Um, it's a band called Bonnie Light Horseman, Bonnie B-O-N-N-Y. And um, it's uh, myself and the um, front man from a band called Fruit Bats and a guy named Josh Kaufman who's a guitarist and we're gonna do Newport Folk Festival and Pickathon and some stuff this summer. Andre DeShields, with a career spanning half a century, is probably one of the most composed of the evening, even though this is his first Tony win of his lifetime. He took home the award for Best Featured Actor in a Musical for Hadestown. Simply asked how he felt, he had the following to say. I felt successful. I felt a, a kind of completion, because I wasn't going to leave Broadway until they gave me what I thought I deserved. <laughs> But there's so many other adventures that I want to have. There's so many other mountains that I want to climb. Because at the end of that statement, you'll recall, I said, the top of one mountain is the bottom of the next. Keep climbing. Uh, I gaze at the stars because the stars gaze at me. So every decision I make has to do with my being a triple Capricorn. And of course, Capricorns are mountain climbers. So I'm looking for my next peak. Perhaps best known for his work on television as the neurotic father on Malcolm in the Middle or the psychotic meth dealer on Breaking Bad, Brian Cranston cemented himself as one of the greatest actors of the last few years, winning his second Tony Award for his second role on Broadway for his work in Network. 
When I asked him about whether he wanted to do more theater, of course he too said yes. I love it. I do. I love it. It's, the, it's really the most fun and connective that an actor can have, is to be on stage. Um, it drains the hell out of me, though. It really does. Because I seem to be attracted to really damaged characters. So I don't... I, I, I keep thinking of, of like a a, a a comedy where I'm sipping tea or something, and I think, well, that'd be nice. Wouldn't that be lovely to just sit around? But uh, unless something really catches me and I sense a journey for someone, even if it's unobtainable, I am attracted to that, damaged. So, four years? Like every, yeah, I have to, I have to go rec recuperate and then come back. Also, in what was inevitably some of the best advice given to other actors, he explains why he simply doesn't get on social media. He just tries to focus on the good and the positive. I don't read anything on social media coming in uh, because I, I don't need to. In, I don't mean that in a crass way. I mean that in a, I don't need to, to be the recipient of a bombardment of, of negativity and, and, and uh, vilification, you know, because I speak out on a lot of things. And it's just, I want to speak my truth. If you don't agree with it, that's okay. But uh, I, don't, I don't think we want to make enemies of people who have a different opinion. Winning her first Tony for Best Actress in a Musical after two previous nominations, Stephanie J. Block speaks to us on actually texting Cher. It's really crazy. Well, she's not Cher in my phone, as you can imagine, because if you lose your phone, that's something, that's information that shouldn't get out. Um, but I do, every time my phone kind of goes ding, 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 ding. If you get seven or eight dings, I pretty much know it's going to be sweet share on the other side. So she was wishing love. She's really proud of the show. She said that it's bringing so much joy in a time where, you know, some of us have some heavy hearts. Um, she was delicious in the sense that she said, good luck tonight. I mean, tomorrow. I mean, tonight. No, I mean, Sunday. Right, Sunday. I love you, doll. Sunday. And then, you know, the kiss emoji. It's all very share. I mean, she's so authentically herself whether it's an email or a text message or in person. So um, she translates the same and it's just so beautifully authentic. In Stephanie's televised acceptance speech, she referenced a journal entry that she wrote to herself when she was a small child. Here was her response when asked what the younger Stephanie would think about present day Stephanie. Well, when I go to my therapist, we will talk about that. Um, it's really amazing just because it is something you don't work for the award, but it is always that hope, that wish, that dream, that goal. And I'm serious. I mean, that little journal paper was from 1984. And so to stand up there 30 some years later and to know that that actually happened really brings me to my knees because there were so many times that I just thought New York is just too much. It's all too much. I quit this business at least two, three times a year. And yet I still stand here because of the people who love me. And I know it all takes endurance and tenacity. And, you know, not to bring it back to Cher, but that was one of the reasons why I said yes to play her. Her tenacity and her resilience and never giving up on whatever life throws at her has brought me here. I'm just so grateful. As the night wears to a close, Hadestown takes the coveted Tony Award for Best Musical. This brings Anais Mitchell and Rachel Chavkin back to the media room once again, along with several others from the production team. 
Again, we hear from Aeneas. It's pretty surreal. The whole night is pretty surreal. And um, I'm so grateful that this show has found a home here on Broadway, having come from this really uh, wild and unconventional place. And, um, and really, uh, everyone who's touched the show, artists and producers alike, has, um, has put the art first. And so the fact that, that art uh, and, and, and commerce uh, go together sometimes is a beautiful thing. <laughs> Credited as being the primary driving force behind bringing Town to the Broadway stage, producer Dale Franzen gives her thoughts. I would just say, as a woman, I think tonight was a really incredible night for women. I just want to say that, and I hope that what Rachel said in her speech becomes the norm and that we don't have to say that anymore. That women need to be producing, they need to be directing, they need to be given the opportunity. So for me, it's been, I'm a Californian, this has been an eye-opener, what it's like on Broadway. It's an amazing place, but we do need to do some work here. And we're really proud, Mara and I especially, that we are like the fairy godmothers of these two incredible women who are the future. Right? Yeah, I was just going to throw out there that also that it, multiple times working on this with Rachel and with our creative and design teams, we've felt like we were chipping away at a sculpture that was already in the stone, and that is the feeling of working on these really old uh, myths and stories, that, you know, we were, we were chipping away and chipping away, and sometimes you'll see, like, the left ear of the thing suddenly comes into focus, and it, <laughs> and it came through a, a, a choreography move or, or a costume piece or a sudden staging idea or a new rhyme in the lyrics. Um, or a violin part, and, um, and to have so many artists coming together to be trying to divine what this, what this thing already is and wants to be chipped out of the stone to, be, um, to become more clear, that has been what it's felt like to me. That's great, everyone! Take five! Take five! I'm tired. It's 11.37 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That joke is done. It's a sad song. It's a sad song. Guys, this is the best night ever. We're both exhausted, but it's amazing. <laughs> Hades Town creative team just left. Coming into the press room in a different order than how the awards were actually given out, the final two to speak to the press room are Jez Butterworth and Laura Donnelly from The Ferryman, which won Best Play. Jess gives us a little insider information before speaking to the content of the play itself, which was based off of the real-life murder of Laura's uncle by the IRA. The first thing I felt when we won was, how am I going to get past... I'd been instructed to get up there as quickly as I possibly could, and as you can probably tell, I'm not a speed-based animal. Like, I, I move quite slowly. So I had to get past Laura's dress to get on the stage to say anything of any import. As, and by the time I got up there, it already said, can you wrap this up on the, on the <laughs> teleprompter? So I thought I'd blown it by that point. I thought I'd let you down. I've never written a play before that is based on somebody else's life story who I'm that close to so consciously. And it has felt from the beginning as if I was borrowing from her family's loss and her family's uh, grief in a way that uh, I was, I, I'm not sure I've ever been entirely comfortable with. But I also feel, uh, I've never felt, I've written seven plays and twice I've felt as inspired by an actor to write it. And one was Jerusalem with Mark Rylance and the other one was this one with Laura. We made it to the end. Thanks for listening to episode five of Serial, part of the Broadway Lovers Complete Breakfast. Visit us online via theater underscore podcast on Instagram and Twitter. 
via thetheaterpodcast.com or send us an email via feedback at thetheaterpodcast.com. And make sure to follow Parody Bill on Instagram for more amazing Playbill mashups. Sitting on a Broadway throne Now I'm against the wall In this toilet stall As I scroll through Twitter on my phone Reading people say Corden's a talentless hack And why CBS can't Get Neil Patrick Harris back Now I'm just James in the bathroom, James in the bathroom at the Tonys. Broadway's biggest fraud. I'm paranoid, I'll fall or trip or rip my tux. Afraid that Anna Winter thinks this outfit sucks. I'm just James, who you don't know. James from the Late Late Show. James in the bathroom by himself. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.